I started off in magazine publishing, and when we set up our online version of the magazine, we spent a million dollars on a content management system. A content management system of equal quality, a few years later, cost $500. And then uh, a couple of years after that, say 2003, 2004, uh, was free and uh, effectively free. And it enabled people like me to create content that at least visually uh, presented at the same high quality as anything else that was being published on the internet. And also enabled me to go very deep into what was at the time seen as a very niche area, which was gadgets and consumer electronics, and really build a website that catered to that specific audience, uh, people that were interested in gadgets, and really go deep with them in a way that websites really hadn't before because the cost of overhead and the cost of having big teams and things like that meant that you had to go at least somewhat broad in your coverage to be able to justify the cost of the website and the cost of maintaining the website and the cost of having a whole team of people creating content and editing content. I boiled all of that down to basically just myself, uh, at least to begin with, and was a one person self-publishing essentially with a very simple content management system and covering and writing about stuff essentially on my own, at least initially. That was Peter Rojas. He's talking about how new technologies enabled a single person like him to do what used to require entire companies with hundreds of employees and multi-million dollar budgets. A lot of people didn't believe it was possible at first, and he sure pissed off plenty of them along the way, but in the end, I think he proved his point. Peter is the founder of the wildly popular tech blogs Gizmodo and Engadget. Are you ready to hear the story? Let's get dialed in. Welcome to Webmasters. This is the podcast that wants to help you become a better entrepreneur and an all-around more knowledgeable person by sharing with you the stories of the internet's most successful innovators. My name is Aaron Dinan. I'm a serial entrepreneur. I teach entrepreneurship at Duke University, and I've spent at least a couple of decades researching how new business opportunities get created by new media technologies. You know, things like the printing press or the telegraph, the venerable fax machine, and yes, of course, the internet. On this episode, we've got a fantastic example in the form of an equally fantastic conversation with Peter Rojas, the somewhat outspoken founder of both Gizmodo and Engadget. If you have ever searched for a review on a new laptop or maybe the latest iPhone, you've probably come across both of those blogs. Peter started Gizmodo in 2002, right as blogging was beginning to take off. He built a huge audience for it over the course of a couple years before moving on to Engadget, which became even bigger. We're gonna hear how Peter grew both of these seemingly niche blogs about gadgets into media giants, and we're gonna hear about it right after we hear about this episode's sponsor. You're listening to Webmasters thanks in part to the support of our partner and sponsor, Latonas. Latonas is a boutique mergers and acquisitions broker that helps people buy and sell cash flow positive internet businesses and digital assets. That includes things like e-commerce stores, Amazon FBAs, SaaS apps, domain portfolios, and of course, popular blogs, just like we're going to discuss on this episode. 
If you've got a profitable online work from anywhere business and you're thinking about selling it, be sure to reach out to the team at Latona's. They've been helping entrepreneurs just like you for a long time and they can help you get your company sold for a great price. Or if you're interested in buying an already profitable internet business, finding one is as simple as pointing your browser to the Latona's website where you'll find listings for all the businesses they're currently helping sell. That website is, of course, latonas.com. L-A-T-O-N-A-S.com. If we take a moment to kind of zoom out on the history of publishing and then look at sites like Gizmodo and Engadget, they're really strange. Ostensibly, they're sites about a very, very, very specific topic, gadgets. This is interesting because historically, you just couldn't publish about something so niche. It was too expensive. But of course, the internet changes all of that. Niche topics with presumably small audiences become accessible. And that's why we're talking about Gizmodo and Engadget on this episode of Webmasters. They represent a bigger theme about the value of niches in entrepreneurship. In fact, this episode's guest, Peter Rojas, explains this phenomenon pretty well. So let's hear how he talks about it. The internet works by either going very, very broad or going very, very deep. Being in the middle isn't a place that you want to be. You want to either have something that resonates really strongly with a core group of people or something that is able to connect across as many people as possible in terms of your product or your service or or whatever, right? And I think we're seeing that played out today with influencers and creators and platforms and, uh, you know, the fact that, like, businesses are able to scale to essentially everybody, but that you're also able to be successful by saying, I'm not going to try to appeal to everyone. I'm going to go really, really focused into this one niche or this one category and be the the expert or be the trusted source or be the best at serving this audience. And you can be really successful at that now. There are enough business models and tools that allow you to be able to do that. And you know what I was doing with Gizmodo was, I think, an early version of that. We didn't have subscriptions and sub stacks and things like that at the time. Um, in fact, at the time, nobody thought you could get anyone to pay for content on the web. Uh, I think the Wall Street Journal was like the one exception to that. And everyone thought that was going to fail eventually. What I figured out with Gizmodo and then with Engadget is that I didn't have to go and write the same kinds of content that I was writing with Red Herring or for Wired or for the New York Times, which are places that I had also written for. What I could do is I could sort of give people this sense that they were in touch with the daily pulse of the gadget world, that I was giving them everything that was interesting that day in a really easy to consume format. The value of targeting a small audience is, admittedly, a bit counterintuitive. Most people assume if you want to build a big, successful company, having as many potential customers as possible would be a good thing. But it turns out the reverse is probably more true. Or as I like to say, when everyone's your customer, no one is your customer. By that I mean the bigger the audience you're trying to serve, the harder it is for that audience to realize you're creating something for them. Your messaging gets too broad and as a result, your product doesn't seem like it fits their use case or needs. Sure, when you go niche, you alienate lots of people, but turns out 
that's okay. The people who do really want what you're building will see what you've created and they'll know it's meant for them and their needs or their interests. And that's what Peter was tapping into when he started blogging about tech gadgets. He wasn't also trying to reach people who liked fashion and cooking and movies. He was targeting people who, well, probably grew up a lot like him. I was born in 1975, uh, immigrant family, fathers from South America, I was a doctor. But he was always really interested in new technology. And we were the first family in our block to get a VCR. I think that was in 1979, 1980. Uh, he bought the first CD player ever sold in the US, the Sony model. Uh, I think it was maybe 1983. We had a Pong set up in the house. I think I was five years old in 1981, had my tonsils removed. And to keep me busy while I said to stay home, he bought an Atari 2600 which made me very popular in the neighborhood after I was able to see kids again. But then also he bought an Atari 400 when that came out, an Atari 800, and he had started teaching himself basic. Uh, and I learned a little bit of it myself, sort of the most popular, I'd say, enthusiast programming language at the time. And it would drag me along to these sort of like homebrew computer club meetings in our town. And I remember, you know, at the time you would subscribe to these computer magazines and they would come with pages of programming instructions for you to make games. So he would make his games by just copying the lines of code from the magazine into basic and then running it. And so that was like sort of my earliest exposure to computers and computing. And it feels like we always had a computer in the house. Obviously that's not true, but from my perspective, it was, we had early Ataris always around and there were things to play with and experiment with and to learn from. When did you first encounter the internet and the web? Or, you know, judging by the timelines you've given, maybe the better question is pre-web type networking services, uh, Usenet, BBSs, things like that. I don't remember the exact year that they got on the internet, but we got a computer with a modem. It must have been maybe 87 or 88. And then not long after that, signed up for an early ISP service called Prodigy. And we had to wait for them to get a local number in our area because we didn't want to pay long distance. And uh, we had a, I think, 2400 baud modem, maybe even 1200. And we would dial into Prodigy. And I was just absolutely fascinated by it. And at the time, I was maybe 13, 14, and really into music and discovered these messaging boards where people were talking about music and bands and things like that. And so we'd like learn about music and started talking with people. In fact, actually like started talking to girls through this messaging board and found that it was a lot easier for me to talk with girls on this messaging board over the internet than it was in real life <laughs> and ended up becoming real life sort of pen pals with some of them. We're like exchanging letters and, and getting to know them. Because the funny thing is like we had email on Prodigy, but you had a limited number of messages and you had to pay. Someone will know this, but it was like after like 10 or 20 messages, you had to pay 25 cents a message or something like that. <laughs> And I think at the time, a letter was cheaper. Uh, and so it's kind of funny to go back to being on the internet before the web and then discovering Telnet, MUDs, and Usenet, and discovering early online communities and being really fascinated by them. And is that why you decided to go into the tech industry uh, as a career, I mean? Um, not exactly, because I didn't feel like I was a hacker or like somebody who was really, truly skilled at this stuff or that I wanted to be a computer programmer. More that I was interested in sort of like the cultural and social sides of these things. 
one of my biggest regrets is that when I was in college in the 90s, the web just launched in like 93, I think. And that's when I started college. And so was exposed to the internet very early, to the web very early and seeing what's going on and sort of, I don't want to say turned away from it exactly, but just didn't really lean into it in a way that I wish I had done when I was that young and taken computer programming classes or spent more time learning HTML or some of those basic things. And I always had this sort of very um, ambivalent relationship to technology at that phase where I thought some things were really amazing about it, but also was really into like vinyl and vintage guitars and the sort of authenticity of things that were older at the time, which is a very 90s thing, or like to really think about authenticity and being real was a, a very big thing in the 90s. Questions that we don't care about very much now, or at least not in the same way. So how'd you wind up coming back to tech and gadgets and whatnot? Only really kind of threw myself back into the world of technology in 1999 when I ended up as an editor at Red Herring, which was a business of technology magazine based in San Francisco during the dot-com boom. And the premise of the magazine at the time was, if you want to understand the future of the technology industry, you have to look at what companies VCs are investing in. They're a leading indicator of where the industry is going to go. And that seems very obvious to us now. But in the 90s, People thought of the technology industry as sort of dominated by big companies. It was going to be about Sun and Microsoft and Oracle and IBM, and that the future was going to be dictated by these big companies. I mean, there's certainly like a parallel universe where we don't have really the internet as we think of it today. We have an information superhighway built by AT&T, right? Controlled by big telecom companies. I think we came closer to that than maybe people realize. <laughs> Nothing about where we're at right now was guaranteed. And so... Working at Red Herring was very revelatory because it actually made me very interested in technology as something bottoms up, whereas I'd really perceived it as being very top down before then. Even though the internet was this sort of like weird fringe thing that was kind of anarchic and maybe was a thing, but you know, you read enough sort of cyberpunk and it kind of feels like outlaw space, but like the real technology world will be sort of governed by these big technologies, right? Like that's sort of a very Gibsonian, cyberpunkian kind of way of looking at things. And that's certainly kind of a little bit of how I thought about things. And then realizing that, no, this can be a place where things grow and emerge and sort of become the new establishment was a big shift in perspective for me uh, and made me realize that I could maybe play in this space, build in this space, and you weren't sort of consigned to being an outlaw, so to speak, that you could build real things that had a big, huge impact on the world. And uh, was very interested in how technology was changing the ways that we thought about democratization of expression, the democratization of our ability to connect and communicate, changing the ways that we thought about ourselves in relation to others and the rest of the world. And, you know, as someone who had a master's in critical theory and was reading Baudrillard and Derrida and Foucault and Kristeva and things like that, the idea that technology could really disrupt and destabilize a lot of these ways in which we were organizing and thinking about society and culture was like really, really profound for me and something that lit a fire within me, I guess. <laughs> Fair enough. As someone who's read a lot of Derrida and Foucault, I can get behind that, uh, and I'm kind of happy to see it inspiring gadget blogs. So uh, speaking of which, how did you get started? Uh, Gizmodo was first, right? So how did that start? You know, when I got laid off from Red Herring in 2001, when the dot-com bubble burst, I moved to New York and I ended up starting Gizmodo with Nick Denton in early 2002. And we launched Gizmodo in July of 2002. 
Nick Denton, by the way, is the British internet entrepreneur and journalist noted for founding what would become the controversial blog collective known as Gawker Media. You've probably heard of it, as well as some of the legal issues Gawker and Nick ran into over the years by antagonizing people like Peter Thiel and Hulk Hogan. So anyway, the Nick Denton Peter is referring to is indeed that Nick Denton. Hopefully one day we'll get to chat with him here on Webmasters, but for now, let's focus on Peter. After I lost my job at Red Herring, I didn't know what I was going to do. I finally found something I liked and was kind of good at, which was writing about technology. And almost by accident, I got on the job. I mean, I, I had been working in advertising before that. And it was terrible. I was like, they were clearly going to fire me, and I had to find something new to do. And it almost like lucked into this job at Red Herring. Because in the late 90s, they were like, we just need people. We need bodies. You know, I was like, I've never really done journalism before. And they're like, that's fine. Just show up. You'll be fine. Turned out I was good at it and was really lucky to have people like Blaze Zariga, who's the editor of Alta Magazine now, um, O'Malik, who's like a legendary writer and, and venture capitalist. Those guys were my mentors. And Jason Ponton uh, was the editor-in-chief and uh, he really took me under his wing. And so I just had the opportunity to work with just absolutely phenomenal, phenomenal journalists there who just taught me so much. And when I lost the job, I, I really lost my identity at the same time. And, and I really just loved being a, a tech journalist. And a friend of mine who was an editor at Wired, he said, uh, well, you should keep writing. Why don't you start a blog? And I said, why would I give away my writing when I get paid for it? Right? That was sort of my first reaction. Like, why would I give away my precious words when I got paid to write? And he said, well, one, it'll kind of keep you sharp. Two, it'll force you to kind of stay out there looking for things. And maybe it'll generate ideas for you to pitch as freelance I could see that, right? I'll use this as sort of like a notepad, so to speak, for my freelance work. So I started a blog in, uh, I guess, maybe like July or August of 2001. And so it was a pretty early blogger just on my own. Okay, so you were writing a personal blog. Was that getting any sort of traction or creating any sort of value for you? I updated it sort of sporadically, but not that frequently. And I was friends with Nick Denton. I'd known him from San Francisco when he was chairman of Moreover, founder of Moreover. And actually helped convince him to move to New York from San Francisco because he was trying to debate, do I move to LA, New York, or London? And I said, oh, I've just moved to New York. You should definitely move here. This is where all the action's at. This is a really exciting place right now. And so in, I think it was February of 2002, we were hanging out at a bar called Sweet and Vicious on Spring Street in Nolita. And um, he asked me, he said, why aren't you updating your blog more frequently? And I said, well, it's just tough because I'm spending so much time trying to just make a living as a freelancer that it kind of feels like I just should be putting all my energy into that. And, you know, it's nice to like post things from time to time, but it's been hard to sort of see exactly how it's translated into like more freelance work. And he said, well, I've been kicking around this idea of trying to do a more professional blog. Like, why don't we do that together? And I'll just pay you to write it. <laughs> and uh, I was like, well, that'd be interesting. How did you and Nick decide to make gadgets the theme of this new blog? We'd both become big fans of this site called Wi-Fi Networking News, which was an early blog started by this guy, Glenn Fleischman, who I think he's still writing. I think he was writing for The Economist recently. I'm not sure if he still is, but just an awesome, awesome guy. And we loved this website because at the time, you know, 2001, 2002, Wi-Fi was very new. And it was news that people were getting Wi-Fi cards and Wi-Fi routers. And I remember getting the first Wi-Fi card and router from my apartment in New York and showing my roommates. I was like, look, like my laptop is connected to the internet and there's no wire or anything, you know, there's no cables. And, and so he started this website that was just about Wi-Fi, about like new developments in 802.11b, 
and uh, new devices that were coming out, the new cards and the routers. And it just kind of blew my mind that you could start a trade publication that was that niche, that was that focused. And it turns out that because of blogging, you could. It didn't cost him anything, just his own time, right? And his own interest to, to write about this stuff. And he became the expert in this emerging industry, right? Which is Wi-Fi. And so it was revelatory for me. It reminded me of that same moment when I was a punk where somebody said, you don't have to get signed to a major label to put out a record. You can just pay a factory to make a record, you know? I was like, you can do that? Like, you can just pay someone to make CDs for you? They're like, yeah. Which is sort of like mind-blowing. You didn't need somebody else's permission to be able to do something. And as the marginal cost of distribution, right, of content creation drops, you can focus on areas which were too costly to be able to focus on a niche on before. That's essentially what it came down to is Wi-Fi would have been a subsection of some general networking trade publication, a column per month in the monthly publication. Now it was a daily publication. And because he was freed from that constraint, he could cover the industry much more comprehensively than sort of saying, well, I have one page in the magazine. I got to find two things that matter each month. And that was my approach within Gadget was I don't have to be the Gadget section of Wired where I get five things to highlight per month. I can pick 500 things that are interesting every month. I don't have to make the same editorial decisions anymore. The bar for noteworthiness can actually be wherever I want to set it now. These constraints are gone. Okay, this right here is really cool. Again, from an innovation perspective, if you're looking for great opportunities to launch new ventures, you wanna identify major technological and cultural shifts. And the shift Peter's describing was one of those. It's a big part of why Gizmodo and then Engadget were so successful. Previously, prior to the web, creating publications that catered toward niche topics and audiences was incredibly expensive. But free publishing platforms, blogs, basically brought the publishing costs down to zero. When that happened, it opened up enormous new business opportunities around creating content for those previously underserved groups. That's what Peter brilliantly took advantage of, first with Gizmodo and then in Gadget. I hadn't really thought of it exactly as being a business, but I did love this idea of I could do something that felt very punk rock to me, which was I can publish without a filter. I can publish what I want, when I want, in the voice that I want. I don't have an editor. I don't have somebody telling me to dumb it down or to make it more broadly appealing or that I was aiming at the wrong audience. I could sort of dig into a niche and target a group of readers that I thought was maybe bigger than people realized. I didn't know how big it was. I think my goal with Gizmodo was to get to 100,000 readers a month, which seemed like a lot, especially coming from the magazine world where Red Herring circulation at its height, I think was maybe like 230,000 or something like that. And I was like, well, if I could be half that size, that would be amazing. That'd be like a real success, right? (laughs) And obviously got many multiples of that within a relatively short period of time. So it grew quickly, but it had to start somewhere, right? How did Gizmodo get its initial audience and, and how did it grow? We just sent an email to, I don't know, maybe like 500 people that we knew. And other bloggers just linked to it and said, there's this new gadget blog, uh, looks pretty cool. Uh, And then people linked to it. And so people would find it that way. We had an RSS feed. And so people would add it to their RSS feed and they would, you know, track and see what we were doing that way. And so if you're a blogger and you're looking for interesting things to write about, we became a way to track the category. And so we ended up getting traffic 
kind of early word of blog, so to speak. People were just blogging it and linking to it. And it would be great to get links from other prominent bloggers from time to time. And the search stuff helped. But what we found is that when people discovered the site, a lot of people made it a daily habit. So stickiness was very, very high. And people would sometimes visit upwards of like five to 10 times a day. They would just refresh on it all the time. And so there wasn't like a magic formula. There wasn't one thing that really worked. It was just about trying to create content that people liked to read every day. I wish there was more to it than that. We did very little of the growth marketing stuff that people do today. It's a different web, but I also think it was more meritocratic web than we have now. And so I think that people were very generous in linking just as we were. I mean, all we were was linking to other people. And so the whole spirit of that era of, of blogging, that sort of 2003 to 2005 era, was about linking to other people, supporting other people. Notice how Peter emphasized the fact that there was no magic formula behind Gizmodo's success. That's important. Sometimes I worry people are listening to a show like Webmasters hoping for magic secrets that are going to help catapult them to entrepreneurial superstardom. I'm really sorry, but those magic secrets don't exist. Yeah, I know there are lots of entrepreneurship gurus and advice givers on social media claiming otherwise. If you just work hard enough and, you know, buy their latest online course for just $99, you're going to get all the secrets to startup success and soon you too will be traveling the world in your private jet. You're never going to hear that kind of garbage from me. To be clear, I might still try to sell you a $99 course. I am, after all, an entrepreneur, but you're never going to hear me tell you I've got some sort of magic secret to startup success. Startup success comes from a lot of experimentation and a lot of trial and error, which, of course, is exactly what Peter was doing with Gizmodo. It was very much an experiment. It was very much about finding my voice and figuring out exactly what the right length is. Because a lot of people were still on dial-up, we had to have very, very small thumbnail-type pictures in the blog posts. There were people that complained that my linking out to them and doing a, a brief summary of their work was cannibalizing or, or their work. Um, and I had sites that asked me to stop linking to them. Half the people were begging for links, the other half were begging me to stop linking. And um, the people that begged me to stop linking are all gone now. And we're gone quickly because they'd lost their readership, because they didn't understand the value of links as the currency of the web then. It's very obvious to us now, especially as we think about the attention economy, but the web was a very, very different place. Could you talk about that a bit more? How was it such a different place back when you were first launching Gizmodo? The web was very much about Yahoo and Lycos and AOL and getting a link off of the homepage, these portals, right? And what Google did is it reorganized the web around search and discovery. And blogs, specifically my blogs, were very, very link-rich and high quality. And they're links to and they're links from. And so we discovered that like Gizmodo and Engadget started getting a tremendous amount of traffic from search because they were reliable and, and trustworthy and high quality in terms of what we we're writing about and what we we're linking to. And all these big companies and also big publications didn't get that at all, weren't thinking about search, weren't structuring their pages to be easily discoverable, sometimes were hostile to being indexed inadvertently, but they were. And so there were times where if you search for Sony PlayStation or Apple iPod, Engadget ranked higher than Sony and Apple. And we just got a, a huge amount of traffic. 
Was it really that straightforward or were there things you kind of did behind the scenes to optimize for search and getting search traffic? Uh, Because I I know there were always some whisperings in the industry about, let's call them more nefarious tactics. I always strongly believed that we would get linked to or we would rank highly in search if we did good work and that we did things to obviously like help ourselves be discoverable, but, but there was no weird black hat stuff, no link farming. We didn't play any of those games because I felt like in the end, those games would always come back to haunt you. And the demise of demand media and things like that, I think bear that out, that if you try to get too cute about this stuff, the places that feed you traffic will always bite you in the end. And so my biggest focus was, I want most of my traffic to come from people choosing to come to visit us every day. And at least while I was there, most of Engadget traffic was direct traffic. It wasn't search and there was basically no social. Like we tried to get links on Slashdot and boing boing and that was about it. Our traffic over 50% was people deciding to visit Engadget every day. And so you must have experienced that transition from the link economy to the search economy firsthand, right? Uh, Particularly as you moved from Gizmodo to Engadget. Was that part of the reason for the switch? Or, Or I guess... Could you maybe explain why you left one successful gadget blog in order to start another, which uh, on the surface seems a little odd? So um, I'll say one thing is that I think Nick Denton's reputation precedes him. Gawker launched about six months after Gizmodo, and people who are familiar with Gawker know that the tone can be pretty nasty, you know, and uh, pretty aggressive and mean-spirited. And that really wasn't me. (laughs) That wasn't really what I was about. And I felt some discomfort around that approach. And Nick very often pushed me to be more negative with Gizmodo and to attack people personally. And it wasn't something that I was comfortable with. I didn't want to do. He just had a very different vision. He came out of like more of a British tabloid kind of tradition. Gizmodo was certainly not afraid to be critical of things. Like we would diss people's products and things like that all the time, but I never went after somebody personally. I never went after somebody's kids. <laughs> which is something that Nick was very comfortable doing at Gawker and Valleywag. He went after my child, which was pretty disturbing after I left. And also, this is sort of lost to history, but he envisioned Gawker as a side project where he'd have a network of part-time bloggers. I mean, he paid me $1,000 a month. I was definitely working way more than full-time hours. I had to supplement my income with other freelance work to pay my New York rent. (laughs) And he actually, his main project was a startup called Kinja. This is the first version of Kinja. And Kinja was sort of like a social RSS reader, probably a little bit ahead of its time. It was a pretty interesting project, sort of like how can you make RSS more user-friendly and easier for the masses to adopt and also add some lightweight social features to it. And so that was his main thing. And that was what he was focused on. Okay, so the big media entity that Gawker ultimately became, that wasn't actually Nick's original big plan or vision, so to speak? Gawker was always to him like the, that's fun, but I don't think there's a real business here. And as Kinja started to falter and Gawker and Gizmodo started to become more successful, I said, look, I want to focus more full-time on this. I think that if we hire and build a team and invest a little bit more in the platform, we could become a world-class media business. We could take on Wired and CNET and whatever, be something much bigger than all of those. And he said, no that he didn't want to do that. And he also reneged on his promises to give me equity in the business and basically was like, sue me. And um, when I was approached by Jason Kalkanis about doing Weblogs Inc., 
He said, here's what you're going to have. You're going to have founder equity. You're going to get all the support you need on the platform technology side. You will get all the support you need in terms of building out team. You have 100% editorial control, unlike with Gizmodo, where Nick was constantly trying to push me to do things I didn't want to do. And I'd known Jason by reputation when he was doing Silicon Alley Insider, or is it Reporter? I'm trying to remember which one it was. Um, he had done the Silicon Alley magazine. Um, he's going to kill me that I don't remember what name is now. It was a long time ago. So we knew about it when I was at Red Herring. Like I knew who he was and he was become really interested in blogging too. And so when he and Brian Alvey, the third founder, approached me about doing it, I said, yeah, like this is really interesting. And a conversation with my dad over Christmas in 2003 about what I should do. I remember him saying, you really like doing this and you should go and do the thing that lets you do more of it. And I had been offered a job to be the senior editor for technology at Money Magazine earlier that year. And I would have made $75,000 a year and you know been a prestigious Time Inc. editor, right? Which two years earlier would have been like a dream, but I would have had to stop doing Gizmodo. And I realized I like doing this and I think there's something here. I just want to find a way to not lose money doing it. Uh, and so that's how I ended up helping to do Weblogs Inc. with Jason and Brian. We created Engadget. There was a network of sites that existed before we started Engadget, but Engadget became sort of the template for what we did going forward. And so we ended up launching like 70 or 80 blogs as part of the network over the next couple of years. But ultimately, Gawker kind of became something very similar, right? Any sort of retrospective thoughts on the direction Gizmodo and Gawker ultimately took and how that related to Engadget and Weblogs, Inc.? Nick sort of pivoted Gawker to be the same model, which was full-time editors, teams, you know, all that stuff. And so it's disappointing to me that he couldn't see it before me leaving to start a competitor. But it is what it is. And, and I think I ended up working with the right people in the long run and, and got to build the property that I wanted. And so Engadget was sort of the fully realized vision of what I wanted to do. Whereas Gizmodo kind of was like the prototype, so to speak. You know, all the things that I wanted to do, I got to do with Engadget. I mean, Gizmodo didn't even have comments. We added comments in Engadget. We added all sorts of new features and got to experiment with different kinds of homepages during CES and I was the first person to cover CES in real time as a blogger. There's just like a lot of stuff we ended up getting to do that I'm really proud of. And I wouldn't have been able to do that if I hadn't made the jump, I think. As painful as it was at the time. And can you tell us ultimately what happened with Engadget? Because you're obviously not still running it. Yeah. So Engadget ended up growing to be bigger than Gizmodo. I think it took about five months for us to beat Gizmodo's traffic. And I remember my last month at Gizmodo, I think we hit a million, I can't remember if it was a million page views or a million unique visitors. Page views was a really important metric at the time. And now we look back and we're like less important, um, especially with like infinite scroll and things like that. But at the time, I think it was a million page views was like my target. And we hit that at Gizmodo my last month. And then I was able to exceed Gizmodo's traffic in about five or six months at Engadget and then ended up growing really quickly. I mean, we were growing 50 to 100% a month in traffic in those first 18 months. We'd have months where we double. The growth rate was just phenomenal. The whole business was acquired by AOL in 2005, so about 18 months from launching Engadget to being acquired. And we had grown to, I don't know, I think we were like five or six million monthly readers when we were acquired. So you can imagine like just the pace at which you're growing. It was pretty wild. And so 
it was exhausting. I was working a hundred hours a week, no vacations, managing a growing team, trying to keep up with everything. There was lots of new sites for launching. So there's increased competition. And at AOL, I was continuing to help manage Weblogs Inc. as well as Engadget and Joystick, and then um, launching new properties for them. Like there's a site called switch.com, which I helped launch, but also just experienced some real burnout, (laughs) some real mental exhaustion. And also found myself in this sort of trap of arguing with people on the internet <laughs> about Engadget. And you know, people would complain, like, you didn't link to us. And you'd sort of get defensive and you'd fight. And it's just like stupid, stupid stuff. And I just got really, really exhausted by all of it. I was on the cover of Fortune. And then I was on the cover of New York Magazine. And I had always thought of myself as a more private person up to that point. We didn't put bylines on Gizmodo because it was just me and I didn't want people to realize it was just one person. (laughs) I wanted people to think that it was like a big team doing this stuff. And then in Engadget, we kind of kept that on because I wanted to feel like a little bit like The Economist, like whoever was writing it, it was sort of the same voice, the sort of like slightly irreverent, insidery, yet authoritative voice. And so we never put violence on anything. And I, I never really felt comfortable with the spotlight. I always had a complicated relationship with that. Like we sort of like the attention, but feel really uncomfortable and unsafe from it as well. And so I started to take a little bit of a step back 2006, 2007. If we're talking 2006, 2007, that's that's a solid four or five years of running these blogs. So just for context, about how much content were you creating? Uh, Can you give us a sense of scope? Um, Originally, my goal was to post four to six blog posts a day for Gizmodo. By the time I moved over to Engadget, I personally was writing anywhere from 25 to 35 blog posts a day. I wrote 5,000 blog posts in my first 15 months at Engadget. And what I found was that there was really no upper bound to how much people wanted to read, consume. It was very lightweight. The idea was an Engadget post should either be 100 words or 5,000 words, right? So we'd either have the hey, Toshiba just announced these new laptops. Here's what you need to know about it. Here's a link if you want to learn more, right? And then it's like a 5,000-word interview with Bill Gates. And what I found was that once you're freed from the constraints of a traditional publishing model, going really short and light and sort of being that running commentary on the world, on the gadget world, works because people want to come back every hour and see something new that they can go check out or they can sort of just scan through. But because we weren't constrained by, you know, pages of a magazine, we could go super in-depth. We could go 10, 15,000, 20,000 words. We could write long reviews of products. We could do live blogs. We helped pioneer live blogging of Apple events. And at the time, the way we did it was the CMS wouldn't work over a phone connection. It was not reliable enough. And so we have one person there sending the updates over Instant Messenger to a person who would actually paste them into the CMS and update. And then a second person taking photos and then editing those and then uploading them, sending them over Instant Messenger. Um, And then that getting posted into the CMS because we were trying to do everything over really early, like 3G connections, maybe even like 2G. And for the very earliest events we were doing, we didn't do photos. We just did the text updates. You know, there are these formats that you could create, which didn't really exist before, like a live blog, like this idea of doing 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 updates a day about everything interesting in the gadget world. So you're creating all this content, and I think that kind of got you and your websites a bit of a reputation for being, let's say, less newsy and more maybe 
gossipy. What do you say to that? What do you think about that reputation? Is it deserved? There's no point in having a blog unless you're going to be true to yourself and true to your audience. And I felt like I was always honest with the audience about what I believed, what my biases were, what I knew and what I didn't know. And I loved being able to say, I just don't know. We don't know this, or we think this might be happening, but we're not sure. And being able to have that level of, of ambiguity in your writing is something that you're really discouraged from having when you're a proper journalist, right? They're like, don't write the article at all. I remember when CNET said, you're just a rumor site. And I said, well, no, we're just in the industry and we're saying the things that everybody talks about, but nobody publishes. You know, That didn't mean that everything we published turned out to come to fruition, but it was that we were sharing what we were hearing and we were being honest about our level of confidence in those things. Um, if we'd say, hey, we heard from a trusted source that you know X, Y, and Z is happening. We don't know exactly whether the solver be launched, but like that's what we're hearing. I think being on the reader side in a way that that a lot of publications kind of hadn't been before, where they were not beholden to their advertisers or anything, but I think that there is a sort of sense of you don't want to, you know, sort of anger the industry, right? And I was very comfortable with angering the industry. <laughs> Because I felt like my goal was to be the advocate for people like me who were just really interested in this stuff and loved gadgets, loved the industry. And the thing I always had to tell companies, because I would post stuff they didn't want me to post, leaks, and I'd help normalize the posting of leaks. There's something that we forget, like people posting photos of unreleased phones and things like that, that didn't happen before. The Wall Street Journal wasn't going to publish it. And then like, where else was it going to be published, Right. It just wasn't a thing that a publication did. And so the thing I always try to remind companies of is people interested in hearing about rumors about your products is a gift because the day they stop caring is the day your business dies. I never gave in once to a threat. Any fun examples of that? Any examples of making enemies that you'd maybe care to share? I remember Olympus. I remember somebody pulled images of unreleased cameras off of like an Olympus server and posted them in a forum. And then I found them and posted them. Uh, and I remember the Olympus PR person, you know, you're dead to us. You're never going to get review units. You're never going to get invited to the events. And I said, I don't care. First of all, this is the first time I ever heard from you. I don't even care about doing reviews. Like reviews actually are a lot more work for not as much effort. You know, like I did review roundups where I was like, here are the six reviews out there. Go read these. That was one-tenth the effort, you know, I still got traffic. And I said, you know, I'm well within my rights to do this stuff. And I'm doing what I think is a service to the reader. And six months later, they were begging me to come to their events. <laughs> uh, cover us. They just realized that blogs were where their fans were, where their best customers were. And that ignoring what we were doing was detrimental to their business. And it, to me, it is the precursor to all of the influencer creator stuff that we have now. And I'm not crediting myself in any way. It was going to happen no matter what. My point is that this was the beginning of the time that brands realized that passionate enthusiast communities on the web mattered. And we take it all for granted now. And everybody has their like influencer marketing budget and their outreach and we forget how hostile that world was to people like us. And I don't even mean just like bloggers. I mean, just like passionate enthusiasts. And again, I don't credit myself in any way, but I think at least having been a small part of moving the world towards a greater respect and acceptance of that, of enthusiasts is something I'm, I'm really, really proud of. 
And, in my mind at least, it's something Peter really should be proud of. As he said, Peter Rojas doesn't get all the credit for creating a world in which the perspectives and opinions of consumers became more powerful, but he certainly deserves his share of that credit. To be fair, I guess you could argue whether or not consumer communities deserve to have such powerful voices, particularly in relation to businesses and their products. But the reality is the internet fundamentally changed the way consumers and businesses interacted. Whether you loved them or hated them as a business creating tech products, websites like Gizmodo and Engadget were the manifestation of an important shift toward consumer empowerment. And to be clear, the shift wasn't easy. In fact, getting to the point we're currently at where consumers have a powerful voice in the products they use, well, that took quite a lot of fighting from Peter and, you know, a lot of people around him. I think one of the moments that really sticks out for me is in 2005, the first time Engadget covered CES, and we brought a team of people. It was really like a ragtag bunch. At the time, it was hard to get people to write for blogs. I had very little budget to pay for people. And I remember just sort of convincing people to come to Vegas with me to cover CES. And I'm like, look, it's going to be a grind. It's going to be exhausting. We're going to work all day, every day, but we are going to beat everybody else. We are going to be the site everybody reads at CES, right? We're going to do 100 stories a day, every conference, every product announcement. Like We're going to own it. And we had like five people. I printed out maps of the convention center. I was like, you're going here, you're going here, you know, like this whole thing. And we had brought with us this guy who had been our copy editor, just like a fan of the site. And he was like, hey, I'll copy. I'll, I'm bored at work. I'll like, I'll be your copy editor. And I was like, cool. And I'm like, you know what? I just need somebody to come to like CES and like just write. I know that like, you know, I'm a ton of experience blogging, but just like come, I just need bodies, right? I just need people. And this guy, he did not sleep for like five days. I just remember like we'd be in the press room. We're all like fighting for space, jostling for space. I remember he showed up and he had this like crate of Mountain Dew or like Red Bull or something. He's like chugging Red Bulls. His eyes are bloodshot. He's just so clearly exhausted. And somebody, like some other reporter trying to find a spot, kind of like jostled him with his gear bag or something. And the guy from my team just like lipped out, just started screaming like, what? Don't touch me. Don't touch me. You know, like freaked out. And he went home from CES and we never heard from him again. He just disappeared. <laughs> Didn't answer calls, emails, texts. We broke him. And I felt so bad about that. But it was just one of those things where it all seems silly in retrospect, but it really felt like we were going to battle every day. Like we were just like in the trenches and we're all here. And the relationships that you forged at that time, it was really special. Like we were working really hard. We were not respected. We were the underdogs and the relationships, except for this guy who disappeared. I still in touch with all those people and we reminisce about the war, right? Like the good old days. When did you first realize you were, I guess, winning that war? I remember we had our first Engadget reader meetup in New York and I was like, I don't know, maybe 20 people show up. I think we had like 200 people show up people that were just passionate readers of a gadget blog. And I just remember in that moment, it told me that something had really changed in the world and that we had stumbled upon something really special with what we were doing. And one of my proudest moments in life was a few months before my dad died. He died unexpectedly in 2007, but I hosted a, an Engadget reader meetup in San Francisco that he was able to attend. 
he was like a gadget guy himself. He brought his fancy DSLR and he was like taking pictures and, you know, people were like, oh my God, you're Peter's dad, you know, all this stuff. And I was just really proud for him to see tangibly what we had accomplished within Gadget, like to see like the energy of the community, the, the line, the hundred line of hundreds of people waiting to get into the event. You know, you always worry when you're growing up about like, you know, I'm an, my parents would be proud of me. And my dad was a doctor. And since I didn't become a doctor, it was always like, oh, am I going to, am I a huge disappointment to him that I didn't become like a doctor or a lawyer or something like that? I became a writer. And so it was just like really nice to, for him to be able to see something like that and him to feel part of something that I had been experiencing. What a great story. Peter developed a love of gadgets from his dad as a child, and he went on to build some of the largest and most prominent gadget communities in the world. And he even got an opportunity to share that success with his father. Along the way, he helped usher in an enormous transition in consumer and media culture that we're still trying to figure out today. A culture where a niche community can represent just as interesting and viable an entrepreneurial opportunity as a huge community. And I guess you could say something like this podcast is a manifestation of that transition. So, well, thanks for spearheading the shift, Peter, and thanks for taking the time to speak with us here on Webmasters and for sharing your story. If you're interested in seeing more of what Peter is up to these days, he publishes a lot less often, but you can find him on Twitter. He's at Peter Rojas. And of course, this podcast is on Twitter too. We're at Webmasters Pod. I'm also on Twitter at Aaron Dinan. That's A-A-R-O-N-D-I-N-I-N. And be sure to check out my website for lots of articles and other entrepreneurship content. That website is AaronDinan.com. Thank you to our audio engineer, Ryan Higgs, for his help pulling together this episode. And thank you to our sponsor, Latonas, for their support. If you're interested in buying or selling an internet business, don't forget to check out latonas.com. Finally, a big thanks to all of you for listening and you can keep doing it. Just make sure you're subscribed to Webmasters on your favorite podcasting app. You'll get our next episode as soon as it's released in just a few days. Until then, well, I guess it's time for me to sign off. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>